0: So Acts chapter 18 is going to be where we're at. And let's take a look at our passage, starting at verse 1. After this, that being Paul being in Athens, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native, a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every, sa- synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.'" From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are of who are my people. and he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, "This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law." But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews. In us, receptive hearts to receive all that you have for us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would instruct us and that you would teach us, that you would take your your word and the things that you have revealed in your word and that you would illuminate them for us. And Jesus, we just pray for a work of your spirit here. And Lord, I, I pray for myself that you would help me to articulate these things with clarity and um, Lord, I don't need eloquence. We just want to be able to operate in the, in the Spirit and to be able to receive from your Holy Spirit. So just be with us, Lord, now, and prepare our hearts for these things. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was in really bad physical shape. Some of you were around to see that. It was the beginning of our core group days. Uh, there were others may have heard bits and pieces of that, but I was in really bad shape, and um, it was just, I was a mess. I was in, a, in extreme pain, and uh, I couldn't hold or play with my kids. My newborn was just a few months old at the time, and um, it, was, it was just a, a very difficult time that I was going through, and... Um, After a few months, I found myself just becoming very emotionally fragile. And there were times where I would find myself crying. And if you know me, um, at least, you know, uh, I think uh, the joke about me is that I don't have any tear ducts. um, And I'm (laughs) broken in that sense. Um, But I was proving my reputation wrong. And there were moments where I would just begin to cry. And it wasn't because I was sad. It wasn't because I was in too much pain. It wasn't because I was depressed. I was just emotionally frayed. I was emotionally spent. I was just, I was just, I was just completely overwhelmed and, um, and, and, and exhausted. And as I was just thinking about that this week, I was thinking about this journey that Paul was on. He had been through a lot. And I wonder about his state of mind. I wonder about what he was feeling as he is on this uh, his second missionary journey. And he's been through a lot. He's traveled from from Athens to to Corinth now. And as he's on his way, I'm wondering about what he was thinking and how he was feeling. And if you remember from our studies in previous weeks, um, he had suffered a terrible beating in Philippi, where he had also been thrown in jail. Um, He was chased out of both uh, two other cities, Thessalonica and Berea. He was chased out of those cities by mobs. And in Athens, um, where he was just previously, there had been a whole lot of talking, but not a whole lot of receptivity to the message of Jesus, not a whole lot of receptive hearts. And so now here he is in Corinth. And Corinth was the, the seat of Roman government. It was a great commercial center. Um, It was the the provincial capital of the area, and uh, all the roads in the area led through Corinth, uh, it was situated on an isthmus. I don't know if I said that right, but I'm not going to try again. Do you guys remember from school what that is? It's just this, this, this little band of, of, of land uh, surrounded on two sides or, or bordered on two sides by water. So it was located in such a way that it was between the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea, and it was situated in such a way that all the roads went through there because that was really the only parcel of land uh, that there was there. And no doubt... Paul would have seen Corinth as strategically important to the spread of the gospel because if all trade radiated out of Corinth, so too then could the gospel. And while cities like Athens, where he had just come from, were known for their uh, influence on culture um, and influence on philosophy and things like that, uh, Corinth also was known for something, but not that. Corinth was known for its... uh, it was known throughout the Roman world as a center of, of immorality and sensuality. It was also known for its worship of the goddess of sex. And so there was a little hill that rised up above this city, behind this city, and there was this temple there, a temple to Aphrodite. This was the goddess of sex. And every evening, the priests and the priestesses, who were both male and female prostitutes, they would come down and they would de- descend into the city streets to ply their trade. And first-century historian Strabo claimed that there were a 1,000 of them. And so um, as, it was, as this was just such a regular part of the life in Corinth, it had this reputation that if you wanted to live a debaucherous lifestyle, you wanted to make your way to Corinth. It was almost, in some ways, the way we sometimes regard Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That was sort of what Corinth was like. And there was even ways to refer to people from Corinth. So if you were someone that slept around, if you were a drunkard or whatever, you would often be referred to as a Corinthian. And, and that even within plays, that's how a Corinthian or a person from Corinth would be portrayed as someone who slept around a lot and was a drunkard. And uh, depending on your perspective, uh, you would either think that the gospel was going to be a really horrible fit in Corinth because of how it was, Or you might also view it as the perfect fit for the city of Corinth because it was so desperately in need of the gospel. And in our text, we see Paul come into Corinth and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And they had moved there because they had been previously in Rome and had been kicked out of Rome as all the Jews had been kicked out of Rome. And uh, they would become faithful friends and partners of the of of the ministry of the gospel to Paul, and and they would just we will see them come up later on as we as we progress through our study in Acts, and. uh, Paul's hanging out with them and he's, he's also a tent maker by trade as they are so he joins them in the work to make a living. And then we see that Paul and Silas finally come and they join up with him. These were his traveling buddies. He had left them behind uh, a few cities ago and they had finally caught, caught up with him as they had made their way from Macedonia. And we know from other passages of Scripture that as they had been left behind, they brought a good report from the church in Macedonia. And not only did they bring a good report of the church in Macedonia, they also brought from the church there a generous financial gift for Paul, which enabled him to leave his job as a tent maker and devote all of his energies to proclaiming the gospel. So there in Corinth... That's what Paul is doing, and we see that he was not received very well for the, as, he, as he is preaching and he's speaking of Jesus in the synagogues. The reception of the Jewish community is that they just reviled him and opposed him, and, and so Paul got a little upset. And so it's recorded here that he shook out his garments. And you can sort of get the imagery of that there. And this was a Jewish uh, gesture of detachment, illustrating that he was basically over it. He's like, I'm done with you. And he didn't even want, it was sort of symbolic of not even wanting a grain of dust to, uh, to remain on him. And so he shook out his garment. And he says to them, your blood is on your own head from now on. And he throws this fit, I'm going to the Gentiles. But of course, this would only apply to Corinth for the time that he was in there because the next city he goes to, which is Ephesus, we see that the first thing he does is go to the Jewish synagogue. Uh, But basically, his attitude was, I'm out of here. But then he just goes next door. So he didn't go very far. And despite the resistance of some of the Jewish community there, we see that the gospel is making an impact for the ruler of the synagogue himself embraces Jesus along with his entire household and many of the other, uh, the text says, many other Corinthians. And they were baptized, as all believers are called to to be, as a means of identifying uh, with Jesus and being obedient to Jesus through the waters of baptism. And the fact that people were becoming uh, followers of Jesus, this is actually what may have prompted fears of backlash and opposition as, that, as fo- this had been Paul's experience. And so we see then that, that God appears to Paul in a vision with some very encouraging words for Paul. And, and uh, he ministers to him and encourages him. And, and then uh, the Jews grab Paul and they take him before the tribunal and be- before Paul can even put up a defense the case is dismissed as irrelevant to Rome and, and, and because it was just regarded as a Jewish matter. And it even served to advance Christianity because as the tribunal makes this decision, as, as this ruling is made, it now sort of ratifies and legitimize, le- legitimizes Christianity as a, sect, uh, and, and as a sect within Judaism and therefore gives legitimacy to, to Christianity in the eyes of Rome. So that's sort of an overview of the passage. And there's obviously, what we see here, there's a, lot, there's a lot that's going on. And there's a lot of familiar themes. There's, there's so many times we've already seen many cases of, of Paul's on this missionary journey. He rolls into his city. He preaches the gospel and may or may not be received. More often than not, there's opposition and just all hell breaks loose. And so there's, there's some of that scene here. But tonight, what I would like to do is to take the liberty to draw our attention to a specific portion of this passage, and, um, and, and what I want to focus on is specifically verses 9 and 10. We see that there in our text. And, and, and I find what is contained here and what is recorded for us. Here in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 18, I find this here to be very interesting and, and, and an interesting part of the narrative. As I, I don't know about how you felt as we were reading through it or maybe you've been reading ahead. I'm going through this passage and I'm sort of reading what almost seems like a diary or just an account of Paul. And he's like, okay, he did this, then he did that, and this happened, then that happened. And then he gets to this part where God appears to him in a vision and it just jumped out, out to me as something that was very interesting, something that was very remarkable, and we see here that the Lord gives him this this uh, this pep talk, but I almost got the sense that we were missing something. So, so like, where does this come from? What what is really going on here? Why the pep talk? What is the deal? So, our text doesn't really reveal a whole lot about what is behind this pep talk that God gives Paul, or why God is even sort of communicating to Paul these things, but. We know from other passages of Scripture that about five years later, when Paul is actually writing a letter to the Corinthian church, five years later, he describes himself as coming to them originally in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's how he describes himself. That's the state of mind. That's how he characterizes his state of mind as he enters into Corinth. And so that's how we should understand this as we see this narrative. Paul is coming to them in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And we can look back at some of what we've studied together over recent weeks and we can sort of get an idea of why that might be. And so suddenly, as we understand that Paul reveals this about his state of mind, suddenly this makes a whole lot more sense, at least to me, and we understand it a little better why God sought to encourage Paul in the way that he did. And now we're really sort of getting down to business but as you sort of look at the entirety of what's going on here it makes me wonder and it could cause that it could create that question of why is this his state of mind sure he had been some rough things admittedly but it wasn't all bad right Even here we see Priscilla and Aquila were awesome and they they had become great friends to Paul and and they were a great source of encouragement to him. Um, He's finally reunited with his traveling buddies, uh, Silas and Timothy. They bring him a good report of the church and no doubt that would have, you would think that that would lift his spirits because he had spent some time in that city, had difficult ministry, yet they still are bringing this good report. And along with that good report, they bring this financial gift, which was obviously a good thing, on behalf of the church there. It allows him to focus more on the ministry and less on making a living. And, and, and not only here in Corinth, but even in previous cities, although there had been opposition, it wasn't like nobody was coming to Jesus. So we sort of look at this and see, well, it wasn't all bad. What is Paul's problem? You know, come on, Paul, why so glum? Can't you see, you know, can't you think more positively? Can't you look on the bright side of these things? But here's, here's what we have to understand, and I think this, this really applies to the way that we have interpersonal relationships, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, specifically in the church, how we minister to one another, how we can demonstrate love and support and encouragement to other people. But here's the thing. Most of the time, favorable ex- experiences or good experiences, positive experiences, do not cancel out difficult experiences. Maybe you know that experientially. Maybe you know that from your own life. Maybe your life isn't, complete, isn't a complete train wreck, and you have much to be thankful for and many good aspects of your life, but there's things in your life that really made a mark, left a dent, so to speak. The difficult things that we go through can still affect us. That's the reality of it. So we can't, whether it's our own lives or even other people's lives, as we're seeking to be good friends and good comforters, we can't just sort of, well, you know, get over it. There's these good things happening over here, so why don't you just get over that and just focus on this instead? The reality is these things actually affect us. And we've got to do work and process those things in healthy ways. And it's good for us to know that as we're seeking to be good friends that this is the reality of our human experience. And so for us to minimize... Or trivialized, different, uh, difficult experiences just because there's also some good things thrown in the mix would be a tragedy. Whether it's the way that we relate to other people or even the way that we regard our own lives. Where we could sort of turn a blind eye to the, the damage from our past and the things that we've gone through. It's like, well, you know, I'm going to ignore that and just shut it down and just kind of like forget about it and focus on these things instead. And we could find ourselves in a very difficult situation where we, we, where we become very emotionally unhealthy. And we see here that Paul, apparently, things are beginning to wear on him, even as he recounts in his letter to them later on, five years later, his state of mind as he comes to them. talks about experiencing fear and discouragement and weakness. Sometimes in ministry, and no doubt, this was part of what was going on with Paul, when you are constantly pouring out, when you're constantly pouring out, you, you sometimes you begin to feel like an old basketball, and maybe you've even been in situations like this. You feel like an old basketball, and after a while, you start to get a little bit deflated, and you don't bounce back like you used to. We are, to some degree, experiencing that right now as a church, with Pastor Casey being out on sabbatical. I think most people from the outside looking in looked at Pastor Casey and thought, well, everything's fine. He seems good. He's still like Casey, happy, goofy, smiling, joking, laughing, right? And he was in many ways, but there was things going on with Casey that he needed to deal with. He was very open about some of the difficulties that he experienced in his extended family, and it was just beginning to wear on him. That coupled with the weight of ministry pressure and the constant pouring out in ministry, which is a good thing. Uh, it just began to wear on him. And so here we see Paul apparently is in somewhat of a similar situation where it's, he's just, it's, it's just getting to be a little bit much for him. And so now here he is in, in, in Corinth, a city that was about as a, as morally bankrupt as a city could be. And when you have a heart and a burden for a city and you're trying to reach people with the gospel and you enter into an environment and a context like this and you see the need in front of you, it can be overwhelming. We often regard Paul, the Apostle Paul, as sort of a spiritual giant, right? Sort of the hero of the New Testament. He wrote a large portion of it and he's sort of seen as one of the heroes of the New Testament. But the truth is he was just a regular guy. He wasn't Superman. Yes, God used him mightily. Yes, he was a man of great faith and all of those things, but he was just a regular guy. And he was frail and he was fragile and he had his moments like the rest of us do. And this is one, and when we see things like this recorded in Scripture and revealed about our so called heroes in Scripture, this is one of the ways that we know that the Bible is not. Just the product of man's imagination and a bunch of fairy tales and myths that somebody just wrote down one day. Because if it was really a falsified document in that sense, the heroes wouldn't be so human. We would make our heroes a lot better than this, but yet we see that he's frail and he's fragile and he's dealing with this stuff. Maybe you're in a situation like that where you're wrestling, wrestling with similar feelings, a similar situation where you're just getting worn down. Maybe you've been in a season where it's just getting to be a little bit much and you're honestly starting to get over it. Please know that you're not alone. Not only are there people in this room who are going through difficult things as well, And it's the lie of the devil that says, where everyone else is fine and you're the only one. And there tends to be an isolating effect that takes place. But you're also in good company because Paul wasn't really in a good spot either. The things, the circumstances in his life were beginning to get to him. And in God's sovereignty, these things have been recorded for us. And we get to see what's going on with the Apostle Paul here and this state that he's in, which is, let's just say, less than 100%. And in God's sovereignty, this has been recorded for us so that we, can, t- we, we like Paul, can receive this revelation of God as his character and his nature is revealed to Paul and he ministers to Paul and he desires to reveal himself to Paul and to minister to him We, too, can see, as this is recorded for us, the character and nature of God revealed, and we know that God desires to minister to us in that same way, because it's at the root and the core of who He is. This is His character. This is His nature. And so if you're going through a difficult time, it's okay that you feel that way. I don't want you to feel like you have eight heads or whatever. It's okay that you feel that way. We all go through times like this. But when I say it's difficult, or it's easy, or when I say it's okay to go through difficult times, here's the thing. Because God loves us so much, He confronts these things in our lives. The fears that we have, the lies that we're believing, God loves us so much that He wants to reveal Himself and expose the lies that we're believing, and he wants to just sort of work in that situation, and he wants to confront the things in our lives that are having these negative effects on us, the things that may distract us. And so what we see happening here is that God in the Apostle Paul's life is seeking to lovingly confront what is going on with him. And maybe you need what Paul needed. Apparently he needed this encounter with God, Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation. But as we look at this encounter that that Paul had with God, as God reveals himself, we see that God is confronting the fear that is in Paul's heart. And he says in verse 9, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Simple. And let me just say as we get into this, um, what we're not, you know, we have to understand when we talk about these sort of things, there are times where fear is our friend. Right? We shouldn't go run and play in the street. We shouldn't run with scissors. You know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, do things that could harm us, right? Um, I'm always thinking, as I'm a father of small children, I'm always thinking about what are the things as they get into different life stages, I have to sort of up my life counsel for them um, and to warn them about. And so there's some, sometimes there's things that's appropriate where there's a, an appropriate fear that we can have. And maybe it's not even fear. Maybe it's just common sense, like don't play in the street. But what we're not talking about here is a healthy fear, a, a fear of something that could keep us from harm. These are Those are good things. So we're not talking about a fear that can keep us from harm, but we're talking about the type of fear, and I'm, I believe that God is lovingly confronting the type of fear that would interfere with Paul's life and God's plan for him. And it's important to realize here that There's no rebuke of Paul. He's not saying, do not be afraid, you loser. Do not be afraid, you less than Christian. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't say anything like, hey, you're supposed to be the Apostle Paul. Figure it out. Get over it. We don't see God responding to Paul's state of mind in this way. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him when it comes to some of these things that Paul was experiencing, and maybe he's worrying about things that he's not yet facing. Sometimes we can be really good at borrowing trouble. We can sort of make up these ideas in our head about these things that are going to happen in our lives, and we sort of dread the worst, and we create these scenarios and situations, and we fear these things. Sometimes they're closer to reality than not, and sometimes it's the other way around. But no doubt, as he's in this new city now and he's just getting piled on and he's just, he's just not in a good state of mind, maybe he's remembering the reception that he had in the recent cities that he's been in. And he looks back, he's like, oh yeah, that didn't go well. And that was a tough one. And this time I got beat up and thrown in jail and then a mob attacked me. And maybe he's thinking all these things. He's like, Man, what's gonna happen here? Because I think part of what might be fueling Paul's fear is ministry success, right? Because it was often in Paul's experience, success preceded the persecution. Success preceded the opposition. And so now this is what's happening with Paul. He's over it with the Jewish community. He's over it in the synagogue. He goes next door and all these people get saved. And then that's when God comes and ministers to him. So it could be that it was even his success that was fueling his fear. The, the ministry effectiveness or the fruit of the gospel that he was being, that God in his grace was, was uh, allowing Paul to be a part of. Now when we look at sort of situations in our own lives as we consider what, it, what fear looks like in our own life, sometimes we look at our own life and we think, man, I'm not a very fearful person. I don't have those kinds of hang-ups. That's not something that marks my life. But sometimes without us really realizing it, sometimes if we take a closer look and dig a little under the surface, we find that it's fear that is the driving force behind some things that we view as good. Sometimes it's fear that's the driving force behind our productivity. Sometimes it's fear that is the driving force behind the decisions that are related to our career track or really all decisions for that matter, all the decisions that we make. Sometimes fear is the driving force behind Um, the relationships that we form with people or even the relationships that we run from. Sometimes fear is the driving force behind what we do and don't spend our money on or what we eat or what we don't eat. Sometimes fear is the driving force that sort of explains why we, we can sometimes be so easily offended We can regard ourselves as not being fearful people, but I think often as we take a closer look, we often find that fear is in there somewhere and it's lying under the surface. These are just some examples. So so we see here as God reveals himself and seeks to encourage Paul that God sought to encourage him by telling him not to be afraid because, and we see him continuing to reveal this here, he says, uh, because fear can sometimes make us want to quit, right? Right? He says here, God says, go on speaking and do not be silent. So God is encouraging Paul. He wants him to keep going. I recently read an interesting story um, of, and this has even been depicted in some films, but uh, an interesting story about when the Spartans were fighting the Persians A soldier mentioned to Leonidas, the warrior king of Sparta, he said, uh, he, he mentioned that the arrows of the Persians were so numerous that they blocked out the light from the sun. And Leonidas, his response was, won't it be nice then if we shall have shade in which to fight them? Leonidas was just like, focus. He's like, okay, I get it, there's arrows coming, but we're pressing on and we're doing this anyway. And that's kind of what God is communicating here. Paul, I've got a calling upon your life. You're my ambassador. I've given you this ministry to take the gospel to the known world. And he's saying, keep going. He says, go on speaking and do not be silent. Because sometimes we allow our fear to immobilize us. Sometimes we allow our fears to muzzle us. And if we allow fear to have that effect on us, the reality is we will only remain fearful. That will be the result. We're only going to remain fearful. But if we have the courage and press on, fear can be overcome. It's like with my oldest daughter, Jaslyn. Whenever there's been different times at different life stages, like I mentioned earlier, whether she was learning how to jump from the edge of the pool without wearing a life vest or learning how to ride a bike. once she And if you're a parent, you get all this. And if if you're not, just take my word for it. Um, There were times where Once she had decided that this was an overwhelming situation, and once she had decided that she was scared, it was over. And she would just completely shut down. She would just completely shut down. Her fear was then reinforced by her inability to do anything. And she decided, I'm not doing this. And because of that, she remained fearful. And my wife and I would have to lovingly confront this fear that she would have to reassure her to encourage her and give her some space to process these things, to try again, maybe after a break, maybe a few weeks of break. But this is what God was doing here with Paul. He's confronting these things in loving ways. But God wanted, to, God wanted Paul to press on. You think God understood what was going on in Paul's heart and in his mind? But God said, Don't be afraid. I want you to press on. I want you to keep going. I don't want you to be silent. So he's encouraging Paul in this way, it's encouraging him to not be afraid because the fears that we have can render us immobile. They can make us want to quit. And that is the opposite of what God wants. But that's not all fear does. We also know that fear can make us feel like God is afar off when in reality, God has promised to be close to us. And we see that there in verse 10, where God says and makes this promise, I am with you. This must have been music to Paul's ears. This is also probably something that Paul knew already. He was the Apostle Paul. He knew all this. So there's no response of, I get it, I get it, I get it. Stop preaching at me, God. I know, I know, I know. I don't need to hear it again. I already know that. It was the truth. And so there's a receptivity there. Paul needed to hear this. It's a never-ending truth, but sometimes it's good to be reminded. Maybe you're going through stuff where you're wondering about that. You're wondering about God's faithfulness to you. You're wondering if you can actually trust him. You're wondering if he's close. You, can, you, you intellectually know he's near, and he said, I'll be with you. And maybe you can even look up a verse that will, that will prove it, and you can show people. But that doesn't always mean that we receive it at the heart level. That doesn't mean that we actually trust God and are able to follow through with actions where we submit to God in those moments. I think it's interesting here to, to recognize, and it's important to recognize, that God, in granting Paul, uh, or sort of, sort of in, in communicating this to him, that I will be with you, this is not, doing, this is not God doing him a favor. He's not you know, granting him this favor. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm not normally with people, but you're going through some things, so I will be with you. This is not sort of a special case. God is revealing something that is true about his character and his nature, and it was just as true for Paul then as it is for you and me today, because this is who God is. And throughout scripture, we see God revealing himself in this way. There are multiple places throughout scripture where not only is God saying to people, do not be afraid or fear not, but he's also reminding people constantly, I'm with you, I am with you, I am with you. Another story about my daughter, Jaslyn. That's all I think about, so that's all I talk about. I was recently on the playground with her And she really wanted to do the monkey bars. And we had played at this park for uh, quite a while. And there was a time where she was even too short to even reach the monkey bars. But she had grown to the point point where she could actually reach up and grab that first rung. And so she wanted to try it. And of course, she had seen other kids do it, so she wanted to try it. But she is about to start out, and then suddenly she decides, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm nervous. I think she actually said that. I'm nervous. And she didn't. She was scared and she didn't want to do it. So I went around the side and underneath where she was sort of positioned underneath the monkey bars. I'm like, no, you can do this. You got this. She says, will you hold me? Yeah, I'll hold you. Okay, well, don't let go. I'm not going to let go. I'm here. I'm going to hold you. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not going to let you get hurt. Don't worry about it. Daddy's got it. I needed her to trust me. There was no way that I was going to allow harm to come to her. The fear that she had and how scared she was, the worst fears she had in her mind, there was no way I was going to let those fears come to fruition. I needed her to trust me, but sometimes when we're in that situation with God, we get it. I hear you, God. You got me. You're going to take care of me, but I'm not going to do this or do that because I don't, Trust you. We don't often say it like that, but sometimes that's how we actually live it out. And it was still scary for her, but I had her, and so my presence did not keep it from still being scary, but it did in the midst of it being scary. I was there for her, and I was able to reassure her that things were going to be okay. Another example is when I was in my own life, when I was a kid and I went to Disneyland probably for the first time. And um, every kid likes the concept of Disneyland. But when your kids are really young, sometimes the reality is a little bit different. When you see this giant orange thing called Winnie the Pooh come out around the corner, and he's coming right after you, and it's really, really scary. Take my word for it. And so that's what happened. Winnie, Winnie the Pooh comes out. And in theory, I like Winnie the Pooh. and I know he's a friendly person <laughs> or a friendly bear. But I was scared. I completely freaked out. So here comes Winnie the Pooh. And I'm with my parents. And I run around behind my dad. And I stick my head between his knees. And I grab his legs. And I would not let go. And then my dad thought it would be funny to take his camera and take a picture of me and also Winnie the Pooh decided to walk around and kick me in the butt. If if it was today, I would have sued him, but... So I ran around my dad and I held on for dear life because I knew that if I stayed close to my dad, I would be safe. We have this promise. We have this sure thing That God will be with us. God will be with us. Do we trust that his promise, that he will be with us, is good enough? Or do we make excuses for why that's not good enough and why in this particular situation we're not going to take it to heart and we're not going to believe him? We're not going to trust him. We have this promise. So fear will make us want to quit when God wants us to press on. And fear will tell us that God is far off when he's promised to be close. And also fear will keep us in the dark when God is doing something great. And he says in verse 10, I have many in this city who are my people. This is God saying, I'm doing stuff. I'm working. You may or may not see it. You may or may not realize this but I'm up to something. I'm doing something great. And no doubt, this buoyed Paul's spirits again and encouraged him that there were others and there would be others that embraced the gospel in Corinth. And Paul would go on to have a long, for him, long-term ministry. He was there for a year and a half in Corinth, which was much longer than he was anywhere else other than Ephesus. Normally, he'd roll into town, do his thing, and split. Normally, he was chased out. But here we have this promise that God's saying, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul had effective, longer-term ministry in the city of Corinth. And it's an interesting reminder that there's this bigger picture that we don't always see when we become overwhelmed in our own circumstances. I don't say that to condemn us or to condemn anyone here, but to think about it, when we do become overwhelmed in, our circum- over, overwhelmed in our own circumstances, it's hard to see what else God is doing. It's hard to recognize what he's up to. It's hard to even learn the lessons that he wants us to learn. Sometimes it's even hard to hear his voice. Some, sometimes it's just hard to see anything at all because we've become so overwhelmed and we don't see the bigger picture. It's understandable that we do that, but we also must not do that because if we don't look beyond ourselves if we don't look beyond our circumstances if we don't look beyond how we feel we'll never have the perspective that we need we'll never see how God is working or even that he's working at all and it will leave us depressed it'll leave us unsettled and feeling completely lost and hopeless this is part of what we need to learn is that God is always working. And we were reminded of that in this passage. So this encounter with God, this is exactly what Paul needed to be reminded that he didn't need to be afraid. Even though there may have been real things that concerned his heart, that ultimately, in a big picture sense, he didn't need to be afraid. That he should keep going. That God would be with him and that God was at work the Bible says that God's perfect love drives away fear because in the big-picture sense, his love is everything, and it puts everything else in perspective. God's love is always the answer to our fear because nothing happens in our lives without it first being sifted through his loving hands. None of these things that we experience in our life catch us, sorry, catch him off guard. They catch us off guard and they mess us up and we wrestle with these things because this is not the plan and this is not how it's supposed to be, but God knows and his love is always the answer to our fears and we just need to trust him. It's easier said than done, but it's still true. I love this promise this comfort that we find in Hebrews chapter 13. It says this, and this is God speaking, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise he gives. He's being quoted. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then it goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think about that. This promise that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the response then, this is the outcome of of acknowledging what God is saying, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because knowing that God is on our side, knowing that God is faithful to us, knowing that we have these amazing promises, it puts everything into perspective. It's who God is. Not everybody understands that. Sometimes we don't understand that. Pliny the Elder, the Roman author and philosopher, not the beer, he said this It is ridiculous to suppose that the great head of things, whatever it be, pays any regard to human affairs. Pliny was wrong. Pliny was wrong, and aren't you so glad that he was? I sure am. Because as we see here, God is intervening, and he's involving himself in Paul's life. Such a comfort, such an encouragement. And he's getting involved in Paul's struggle, and he's ministering to Paul because he loves Paul. And the beauty of this is that God loves you, and God loves me, God loves us. So the way that God is ministering to Paul here, and it's recorded for us, for us to learn about God, to know how he relates to us as mankind, so that we understand our relationship with him. And we see God ministering to Paul here. Now, sometimes it looks a little bit different. That doesn't mean that God's gonna appear to you in a vision tonight, although he may. But still, even if God doesn't appear in a vision to you and speak to you the way he did with Paul, we see here still the revelation of God's character and his nature. We're being told right here how God regards these things and how he interacts with us. And part of the beauty of the gospel is that God made a way for us to come close to him. The Bible speaks of those that have put their faith in, in, in God, in Jesus, that we have been adopted. And think of what's being communicated there. There's this word that's being used to communicate what the relationship is. If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and and we're to understand that as God adopting us, what this means is that God, in the role of a parent to us as a child, has said, I want you and I want to be close to you. I want to make you part of my family That's a powerful image that we don't always understand as it relates to us and God. God has adopted us, and in doing that, he has demonstrated his desire to have a relationship with us. But the Bible also says that he did this, and he reached out to us because he loved us, but while we were running from him. And while we were running from him, he still came close to us. He actually came into this world in human flesh, and he lived a life we could not live, that would be the perfect life, and he died a death, we should have died for our sins, and rose again to give us a life that we could never have without him. See, the thing is, as it relates to us and God, and the significance of this upon in, in our lives, is that we've got to understand that the safest place for us is to be with Jesus. As a Christian, You need to know that. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself far from God and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you still need to understand this. The safest place that we can be is to be with Jesus in this relationship with him. The security that we want, the security we strive for, the security we seek to attain in some way can be found in Christ. And instead of running from him, we need to rest in his salvation It's 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 beautiful to think that he that it's beautiful to think on our behalf but he the Bible teaches that he separated himself from the father so that you and I didn't have to be He separated himself from the father so you and I didn't have to be that's what God is reminding Paul of here and that's what we need to hear today as well as we look at this this relationship that God wants to have with us. And we make all kinds of excuses and, and and sometimes they're unintentional, but there's all these ways that we create these obstacles and barriers of why I'm not gonna believe this, why I'm not gonna accept that or what, this is how I'm the exception and God doesn't relate to me the way he relates to everybody else, he did all these other great things in people's lives that I know but not mine. He did all these amazing things in scripture, but that's for scripture, this old book, this doesn't happen in real life. But the reality is, is that God has done nothing but demonstrate his incredible and great love for us. He sent his son into the world for us. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, he died for us, and greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And then there's that picture again of the adoption as we place our faith in him. This is the kind of relationship that we can have with God. He is the, when, when we go through this life and we struggle with various fears and things like that, he is the one that is regarded and, and identified in Scripture as being the Prince of Peace, who then gives us the peace that passes all understanding. All understanding, it passes all understanding because that means that it doesn't make any sense. It can't be, it's under, it's, it's, you can't understand it, you can't comprehend it. He gives us that peace that passes all understanding. And we see how God here, because of his great love for Paul, which we should understand is also his great love for us, is ministering to Paul, reminding him of who he is and what he's all about, how he doesn't need to be afraid, how he can keep going, and how he has a plan for him. And he has a plan for us. And so we do well to pay attention and to take heed how God is seeking to work in our lives and draw us into a relationship with him. Let's pray.